1 Timothy 3.15 But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Good afternoon, everybody, and God's blessings to you all. It is a privilege and honor once again to be with you. I'm <coughs> very thankful for uh, your interest in spiritual things, your invitation uh, to be a part of this, and I'm grateful for your participation as we join together in fellowship to learn more about God's Word, to be convicted by His truth, and to study together in humility and in truth. Um, first off, I want to... Uh, apologize for the cough I have. Uh, as I mentioned, I was sick, and you guys graciously moved the gospel meeting, but I still continue with this cough. Don't worry, I'm not contagious. It doesn't appear I have uh, the COVID, thanks be to God, but I do have a cough that will probably continue for six weeks or so. So for the rest of the meeting, I may be coughing a little bit. I might have a cough drop in or here or there, but please be patient with me. also want to thank uh, the song leaders for their excellent hymns. And the whole congregation, you all do an excellent job. It's something that, uh, honestly... Um, it can be taken for granted when you're in a group of this size or larger of how great the song leading is or when you have good song leaders. Uh, but coming from groups that are very, very small, like 10 or 15 where we're at in Puerto Rico, uh, it's great to hear all the voices coming together. And it is truly an encouragement. And thank you to the song leaders who have been leading excellent songs on topic as well. And it's been, it's been very, very encouraging. So we've been talking about Babylon and the form of Babylon, and then how we are exiles. And it's interesting, when we think about this, it can be very discouraging at times to think, wow, we are called to be different, we're called to be exiles, we're called to be pilgrims. How can I stand up against a current of just digression, of sin, of contamination, of compromise, and of cowardice? How do I stand up like that? I can't do that alone. And the good news is that we were never meant to do it alone. In fact, when we talk about the gospel, as I've mentioned, gospel is salvation. It is the good news. It is that. It is no less than that, but it is more than that. It's not just that I individually am saved and that I can go off and do whatever I want, or I can even just follow Jesus of my own personal accord. We are saved and we are brought into a body. As was read in 1 Timothy, the third chapter and verse 15, we are brought into God's household. We have been redeemed. That is, we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been bought with a price. Our debt has been paid and erased. And now instead of being an enemy, we're not just a slave. We are now inheritors. We're sons and daughters of the Most High brought into the house, into this redeemed relationship with Christ. And that is a wonderful blessing to behold. And when we think about this, this is absolutely on topic and connected with the concept of Babylon. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. And we mentioned a little bit, and I know it was very rapid, and my wife told me I talked too fast, and it's true. I, I was talking to my Uncle Dennis on the way to church service this morning. I said, yeah, uh, where I preached that in Texas, they were complaining about, oh, my sermons were too long. So I said, okay, I'll shorten my sermons. I just talked faster so I could get the same amount of material in it. I'm all about the arguments and all about the material. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. But if I do go too fast, I apologize. And good news, I've, I've got 
the notes on that. And likewise, if anybody has any question at all, or if you have a disagreement, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I welcome disagreement. I welcome engagement. There's nothing more that I'd rather hear is than an engagement, a question, or a critique of the lesson that I would have. I'd much rather hear someone come up and say, Caleb, I disagree with your point, and here's why, than just to give a rote, oh, good sermon and walk on by. Because that tells me, that, hey, you're listening, you're engaging. And it's not me that's here. It's we're trying to get down to what the truth of God's word is. And so I invite you to consider that together. Now, we are thinking about this in terms of uh, Babylon and all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. Okay, Genesis chapter 11, as we mentioned this morning, you have God's command for the people to fill the whole earth. But after the flood, they didn't like that idea because their lives had been shortened. They were no longer allowed to live past about 120 years. Their lives were decreasing, and now they recognize their mortality. And so what do they do? Instead of going and filling the whole earth, as God said, they said, no, we're going to make a name for ourselves, the boastful pride of life, as we read about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. And so instead of going and filling the earth, they say, we're going to come together, we're going to build a tower, and we're going to reach up into the heavens, an act of pride and great rebellion. But not just about pride and rebellion. In a form, Babel was an attempt of community. They wanted to come together and be united on something. Now, granted, they had all the wrong motives and had the wrong perspective completely, but there was a sense in which coming together and making a name. We want to be known. We want to be connected. We want to have this fellowship with one another. Now, in their sin and in their pride, God mixes their language. He confounds their languages into where now they can't even communicate or talk to one another. And still to this day, we have the curse of Babel with us. The fact that I struggle even in my mind to speak in English now because I've been preaching in Spanish so long is a curse of Babel that we have to go through, right? Or if you're at a store and you can't talk to somebody because they're speaking a different language, that's a remembrance of the curse of Babel. But in a form, the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, it is the household of God, it is the answer to Babel. And that's going to be my main contention tonight. That while we look at Babel all around us and we can get very discouraged at Babylon and all its power and think, oh, I've got to take a stand against it, one of the great resounding answers of the gospel is that, yes, you've been saved and redeemed to be an exile among Babel, but there is a people that has been dedicated and set apart not to be with Babel, and you are like them. This is a resounding message that we see all throughout the Bible. Whether we're talking about the form and pattern of Elijah and the 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal, or even in the book of Revelation, when we see the 144,000 who have been redeemed and cleansed and they have passed through the great tribulation, God always protects His remnant. And there's no greater form of the pattern of the remnant than the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And this is absolutely connected to the message of salvation. And it's important that we understand how this then comes and applies to our lives as exiles, and why it's so important that we as exiles do not fall in to the deception of an individualistic salvation approach. I'm not arguing for corporate salvation. Yes, individually we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but too often people, especially in our society, think, well, it's just me, and as long as I'm saved, that's all that matters. And they lose any side of the church, any side of responsibility to one another, any side of community. And we'll see that the Scripture has a lot to talk about what community is, and 
the importance of it. And that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. I want to start with Acts chapter 2. We're going to actually read through the entire section here of Acts chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 36 and following. But we're going to focus in on a couple particular passages. If you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, because we're going to be making a lot of rapid references to this particular text. Obviously, Acts chapter 2 is a text that we are all very well aware of. Our fellowship talks about Acts 2 a lot. It's an important, pivotal point in the Scripture. Because we have Peter presenting the first gospel sermon, and we have those who are first added to the church. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 36, it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's Peter speaking, and he convicts the Jews on the day of Pentecost that they were guilty of crucifying Jesus, the Savior. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Let's focus here on verse 47. I would like to put up the New King James translation on this, which instead of saying added to the number, it talks about the church. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. This is the first time that we see really the church coming together as an entity, the foundation of the church on the day of Pentecost. And they responded to the gospel call. And who added them to the church? God did. Because God is in control of the church's membership. A lot of people have a very denominational concept of the church. of like, well, you have to be recognized by this board. You have to be recognized by a council or by a group of churches. No. When you follow and respond to the gospel call and receive the grace of God and you are saved, you are added by him to the body of Christ. You're not added to a local church. You're added to the universal body of Christ. This is evident in Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized on the desert road. Was he baptized into a local church? No. But was he added to the church? Yes, absolutely. And I know there's a lot of confusion. We're not going to go into this in great depth. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2 talks about this very well, that there's the church at Corinth and then there's those in every place who have been saved. The, the universal church is very important to talk about. And it is something that should be talked about. That's not going to be the purview of our lesson tonight. Because when we're thinking about things that we can do specifically, our engagement really is usually with the local church and the local level. Because we know the universal church never has a reunion. It never has a meeting in a single spot. And aside from individual action, the universal church doesn't have a collective work together. So when we think about the church this body of Christ, in terms of how we engage with it, 
the way that we interface or engage with the church is through the local level. That's why a lot of the exhortations in the New Testament are given to local churches. Because we, having been baptized, we then find other people who have been baptized and who have that same perspective of following God's word. And we come together to work together, to live together in a community. This concept is fundamentally important about what we mean by the idea of church. And I want to specifically detail this out a little bit more and understand what we mean by when we mean church. Because church is a theological or religious term. We don't really use that anywhere else. We don't say, oh yeah, you know, there was a nice church at the, at the cinema this afternoon. Or yeah, wow, we went to this uh, football game and didn't you see the church that was there? It was a huge number. Well, no, we don't say that. When we say church, we mean something religious. And so sometimes when we have religious terminology, we kind of have this separation in our mind. We really don't know what we're talking about in there. Or sometimes other ideas get filtered in that really aren't biblical ideas, but more customary. I'd like to start first with the definition of what the word church means. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which simply means assembly. That's all it means is an assembly. And in Greek, it could be used for a religious assembly or a secular assembly. It was just a gathering of people. Now, obviously, when we're talking about this in a religious connotation, the church that belongs to Christ, it's the assembly of Christ. That's what we mean. And so when we talk about the universal church, we're talking about the assembly of all saints through all time, all nations, all tribes, all and all people. That's the universal assembly of Christ. But when we talk about local assemblies, we're obviously talking about the local congregation. The local assembly here. There's a local church right here. There's another local assembly in Mulvane, in Puerto Rico, in San Sebastian, where we live. There is a local assembly there. That is the concept of the idea of church. Church also has more than just the idea of a static assembly or just a coming together. It's no less than that. It's very important. And I think it's important to understand this. A lot of people think that we are just called together to worship. And they think, well, we come together because it's a means. The assembly is the means of worship. But it's interesting that Christians are actually never, as far as I can see, explicitly called to just worship on an individualistic basis. We're called to the assembly. And in the assembly, we worship. Now, obviously, we can worship. I can worship if I'm out in the cornfield. I can praise God. I can sing. I can do all of those things. But when we're detailing and talking about what is the pattern that we see emphasized in the New Testament, Christians are called to the assembly. That's what they're called to. And this was a point of contention, a huge point of contention over the last couple of years. On the basis of, well, what makes a church? And once again, I never thought that this was going to be something that we were going to have to really debate and discuss not that the debate and discuss is a problem, but people are saying, well, you know, I can stay in my home and I can uh, have online access and I'm, I'm at the church. Well, what do they mean by that? If we understand church as assembly, are they assembled? No, they're not. And it's interesting, I, I've talked to many people about this concept, and they said, well, if you take all the individual elements, it's the same as constituting them in the whole. I said, hang on a second. So you're saying, is if I see, check mark, that's one thing. If I take the Lord's Supper, check mark, that's another thing. If I listen to God's Word, check mark, that's another thing. And if I pray over here, check mark, that's another thing. That constitutes an assembly. And they're like, yeah, that's right. 
That constitutes church. I'm like, no, that's not right. Simple illustration. You all are sitting in chairs right now. A chair is a constituted whole. It has individual parts. Imagine if you came in, you found a bunch of legs and maybe a cushion here and, and, some, and some cloth over here and some different things, some screws, and that's, that's where it was, and that's everything that was here. You would complain and say, hey, elders, hey, Sean, hey, deacons, well, what happened to the chairs? And they're like, the chairs are there. They're right there, look. And you're like, well, I see the materials, but I don't see the chair. Nobody would be pleased or look at that and say, yeah, well, the, the, the constituent parts, the components are the same as the whole. No one would say that. And yet, when it comes to church, we have this idea that, well, because it's this, this obligation of thing we do, not about who we are or what we do together, then I can have this individualistic approach of filling these check marks and I've done church. That's not a biblical concept. It's just not. Church is an assembly. It's a coming together. Now, we may not like that. Honestly, I'm more of an introverted person. And I'm going to say it. My wife says I should be kinder in saying this, but I'm kind of curmudgeonly, honestly. And I really don't like people. I don't. I'm not like my grandfather Leonard who loved everybody. I'm just kind of like, okay, leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone. We're good. Now, I want to talk to you. I'm glad we have a, uh, a meal list. We're excited about getting to know you, really. But naturally, I, I become, I'm more introverted. And our society is thinking that way more and more, right? So it's not of my advantage to say, yes, I need to come together. I need to assemble. But there's something in that. And this is the danger, is that when we try to bypass things of what God says, like church being assembling, and we say, no, 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 we can do it this way, what we're really doing is we're trying to define the purpose of why God has committed something and skip past the exact pattern of it and get to what we think the real point is. There's an arrogance and hubris there that's very dangerous. And we need to be humble and say, look, do I understand why God wants us to assemble? I can kind of tease that out and understand some points. But do I understand all the reasons why we can't just do it individually? No, I don't. But I have to trust that that's important. And then by submitting myself to that, I start to learn more things about the importance of being together. There's something about being together that is actually important. And it's tough because... A lot of times people are like, we live in such a materialistic form. And when I say materialism, I don't just mean like wanting to be rich. I mean, people just believe in science. People think, well, we have no soul. We have no spirit. Our minds are just a bunch of atoms moving together. That's materialism. There's no spiritual reality. And sometimes people will kind of complain. They'll say, okay, but what is it about the assembly? I don't know. There's some things that are beyond us. There's some things that God has revealed, and we need to trust that that's the way it is. This is the ancient wisdom. And he says, you need to assemble. This is all the patterns of what we see. Assembly, assembly, assembly. And it's like, okay, we're going to have something that's not assembly and call it church. Whoa, that's just not biblical. And look, I know that's tough. I know that's frustrating. I know that might not be our natural proclivity for some of us. But this is where we have to ask ourselves, what are we actually accomplishing? The house of God. When you think about the household of God, as we've read in 1 Timothy 3.15, that is a gathering together under authority and an actual presence together. It's not, well, he's over here, he's over there, all these different things. And it's interesting. Think about what Paul is instructing Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. To do what? Establish elders and deacons. He's not telling him to establish elders and deacons over an entire nation. 
He's not telling them to establish elders and deacons over regions or this kind of decentralized elders and deacons over everything. And I challenge people on this, some very good friends of mine that I love dearly, but I have an honest disagreement with. And I said, look, if church can be something that is just digital, that's it. There's no actual assembly. Then can we have a truly digitalized church? Can we then have digital elders, digital deacons, digital everything? And look, there are things about the digital things that are great and wonderful blessings. But we need to think about these things before we just end up following things out of convenience rather than saying, does it actually fit what the biblical pattern is? And when we make these decisions, what are the sacrifices that we're choosing to make? Because there's sacrifices on both sides. I understand. I'm not saying that there's some utopic solution on any of this. But we need to understand what is the fundamental pattern that God is trying to get us to follow. And are we actually following that or not? There is an emphasis here of connections. Connection is something that we actually have to integrate with. We have to interact. I know the word is fallen out of favor, but the word intercourse actually just means like an exchange, social intercourse. I know one preacher told me, he said, don't ever use that phrase in a sermon again, but I just can't. The idea of that interconnection is so tight. Because it's not something that we can just do at afar. It's something we have to be engaged in. I specifically want to look at the book of Acts, and we're going to do this a little bit more, and, and giving you some examples of how this works together in a connection. But even the idea of community, it means quality of common, or common unity. That's the combined word, right? And it was really interesting this last year that I saw more and more people talking about community among our brethren. Why? Because we missed it. We sacrificed it. We sacrificed community. Now, some people might say, well, we sacrificed it for a good reason. Okay, possibly. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. That's something that we should be able to openly discuss with love and patience to be able to talk about. But the fact of the matter is we sacrificed it. Our entire nation sacrificed it. And more and more people are beginning to feel the effects of that. Younger people and older people alike, are suffering at rates of depression unseen before in our society. People are dying alone. People are not getting married. People are becoming more and more isolated. You don't even have to leave the house to go get groceries. You don't have to interact with anybody. You don't have to know anybody. The idea of even a community is gone for the large part of our society. And this is why there's a resurgence of interest in a lot of religion. There are people that I've known that I never thought would be religious at all, and they're now starting to look at religious communities. Why? Because they recognize something is there about a religious community that secularism and materialism have completely lost. Well, yeah, as Christians, we should be saying, of course, the ancient words, the wisdom has told us that all this time. Community and assembly are not arbitrary, but they're very important. This idea comes all the way back from Latin and then Greek, from koinotos, which is the idea of communion. Have you ever thought about that? We talk about the Lord's Supper as communion. What does communion mean? It is a common union. What is a union? It is a joining together. It is a bond that we do. You can't have a union and people doing different things. You can't have a union without two people being brought together. What is the ultimate pattern of a union? Marriage. Marriage is a union. Can you imagine a husband and wife that says, 
yeah, we're going to just digitally say our vows, and we're just going to digitally spend our honeymoon together. What? That wouldn't work. Obviously wouldn't work. We have to be brought together. And I'm not just talking about husband and wife, but that is ultimately the top form of the pattern. There are other patterns that fall in that same line, this idea of coming together. And when we take the Lord's Supper, this is a union between Christ and us. But not just Christ and us, but also everybody else who's taking it too. That's why we're instructed to wait for one another in 1 Corinthians 11. That's why it's not just come show up to the assembly and take the Lord's Supper whenever you want. We do it together because we are joined together in a common unity. We're doing something. This is the idea of fellowship, joint participation. And it requires real presence. And I know this is something that is very deep. And mysterious. And I don't say it's mysterious to sound pretentious, like, ooh, it, look how great a thought I've thought of. No, this is beyond my thoughts. But when you think about presence of Christ, Christ didn't save humanity just from heaven. He came in incarnate flesh. He embodied flesh and dwelt among us. He was Emmanuel. Why? Because presence is important. Christians should support the idea of real presence. In living together and having community. It broke my heart this last year. I was listening to a podcast, and this well known preacher was talking about the fundamentals of Christian community. And he's like, Yeah, we have such a great community. We have all these brethren in India and Pakistan and Europe and Australia that come in and are part of our community. And I just thought, about it, I was like, How? They're not there. There's no presence. There's not a sharing in there. Yeah, there's a digital aspect. There's a form that's there. But there's not a presence. It's missing something. And I'm not trying to denigrate online services uh, in a form. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't have online presence and all that kind of stuff. We'll save that for Tuesday night to talk more about that. But there's a very real aspect that we need to grapple with, that assembly and community demands common engagement exchange, and presence. This is something that my wife and I, we had a challenge this last year. We started working with a group that was about 45 minutes away from where we lived. And a lot of people told us initially, they said, well, why don't you just attend the online services of that group? That'll be sufficient. And both her and I were like, no, we can't do that. We need to be there in presence. If we're going to work with this group, we can't just attend an online service and say we're a part of it. We're not going to engage with them. We're not going to know them. We're not going to share with them if we're away. So we made the sacrifice and continually do. We make that drive every Sunday morning. And there have been so many opportunities and open doors that God has given us because we've made those connections. And it really hit me one day when we had a connection and we baptized a man. Thanks be to God. That came through connections that we had in that church. And my wife said, there is no way we would have had that opportunity had we just attended online. It wouldn't have happened. And I'm convinced she's right. Were there risks? Are there sacrifices to all of that? Yes, there are, without a doubt. But if we're going to speak in terms of this concept of church and invest in that and embody it in ourselves, we have to understand that it requires an engagement of us. And the problem with our society is we're continuing to go to the cheapest, easiest form of engagement possible. Where activism is just done through clicks and sending money to this place. 
And no one wants to actually show up and sacrifice or risk. So we shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves struggling with the same temptations on congregational levels. When congregations, after the pandemic, have been decimated, and maybe not this group, thanks be to God, but I know groups that have been completely wrecked because of this form of a disengagement that has happened. And it's not right. When we look to the book of Acts, and staying here in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to go through some of these details pretty fast, I've just been impacted. Read Acts 2 through 6. This is the start of the church. And yes, I know the universal church and the local church overlap in this because that's all that there was at this point in time. But we think about what is the model of the church. This is it. When we talk about the New Testament church, this is what we return to. What was it like during those times? They shared everything. Everything was shared. That's the idea of community, a common unity. The quality of the common. This is hard, especially in our society where it's pull yourself up by your bootstrap, it's stay off my property, it's, it's over my dead body, you're going to get what's mine. We have a sense of rugged individualism in this country, for better and for worse. But what we need to understand is that the Christian perspective doesn't deny individual responsibility. It preserves that in a very real and important sense. But it doesn't destroy community by making the individual an idol. It's very important we understand. In Acts chapter 2, we see they had a shared form of identity, shared activities, shared devotion, shared teachings, shared continuity. They were continually doing things day after day with each other. They had a shared presence. They were all together. They had shared prosperity. They had all things in common. I want to stop for just a second and talk about this idea of shared prosperity. This is something that is very interesting. I know it's a, bit, a point of contention. It's interesting for years. I have heard preachers talk about this concept of they had all things in common. And sadly, I've heard many people first rush to the idea of saying what it's not. They say, well, this is not communism. Once again, I have to give the caveat, I'm not a communist, okay? But if we ever get to a biblical text and we have to rush to say what it doesn't mean before we can say what it actually means, maybe we have our priorities mixed up. Maybe we're a little defensive on something. What does it mean to have all things in common? It means that if my brother's in need, I don't go say, well, I hope the government programs take care of him. If my brother has problems paying his medical bills, I don't go say, well, he should have signed up for medical insurance. I encountered brethren in Texas that they said, if your house burned down, you needed to go and talk to everybody else around. You needed to go and beg all of your family for money. You needed to go first and sign up for all insurance and then bear your own responsibility before you dared come and ask any help from the church. Why? Because Texas is known for its rugged individualism. Don't mess with the church's money because you're supposed to take care of yourself. Once again, I'm not denying individual responsibility. 1 Timothy 5 teaches that. We need to take care of our own. We get so far to the point to where it's like benevolence means nothing. We don't ever actually do benevolence. Then are we really following the biblical pattern? Are we really having all things in common? Furthermore, we see in this example in the book of Acts that they had a shared service. They were working together. They were serving one another. The, the widows among them were provided out of that shared common fund. 
They had shared participation, a shared memorial in the Lord's Supper. They had a shared mindset in spirit, meaning that they were finding unity together. And that's not easy when you get a bunch of people. Even in a congregation as small as ours of like 15 people in San Sebastian, we have total differences of opinion because we have different experiences. And what do we have to do? In humility and in love, sit down, talk about things, communicate. I was mentioning to some brethren today that a common sub-theme that you're going to see throughout this meeting is the need for engagement, the need for communication. I'm going to highlight a lot of things that I think need to be addressed, but I'm not going to give you guys all the answers because, one, I can't do that. I'm not Lord of this congregation. I can point you to the Scriptures. I can encourage you to discuss these things, but a lot of the application has to come from you all individually, and then together as a group, coming together and say, well, what are we going to do about this? How do we encourage each other? How do we exhort one another to actually apply these things? The elders are going to engage you, the deacons, and, the, and Sean is, everyone's going to come together and work to engage with what the truth is. This is what we have to do. I was talking with a brother in a different part of Puerto Rico last year, and I was talking about the idea of coming together and discussing matters of doctrine and even matters of application and coming together with unity as a church. And he told me, he's like, ah, Caleb, it, it, it sounds great that we're going to sit down and hammer a lot of these things out to have unity, but that we just can't do that. We can't talk about these things. Why? Because we're going to be like Babylon? We see so much dysfunction in our society that they can't discuss things civilly with each other anymore. And are we in the church the same way? Oh, we can't talk about that doctrine. Oh, we can't talk about that application. We can't even talk about how we're going to handle things together in love addressing COVID. We can't discuss these things. They did in the first century, and they did so with a spirit of humility and love. Why can't we? Maybe it's because we don't share the same spirit of love and the same mindset that they did. They had a shared praise. They had a shared ruler and king, Jesus Christ. They had a shared discipline. When the congregation disciplined people, it wasn't some saying, oh, well, we're going to recognize that and other people are. It was together. That's one of the most destructive things that people can do is begin to form splinter groups and divisions and not have the shared form of discipline. Discipline is most effective when it's done by all. And that's what we see in the New Testament. They had shared leaders and the apostles later in, in terms of elders over each congregation and deacons. And they had shared decisions that they came together and did. They would work together to arrive at a decision and then do that thing. But what does that require? It requires people who are willing to work, people who are willing to listen, and people who are willing to love and have patience. To give you an example, I was with the congregation once, and they hadn't really, they didn't have elders, and they really didn't know how to accept people in as members. And there were some people like myself that said, well, we need to at least ask a couple basic questions before we just accept somebody as a member. And other people said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. We shouldn't ask any questions at all. And so I said, okay, what do we do with this? We have a difference of opinion in terms of applying scriptural principles. Let's get together and have a study on this. I tell you what, brethren, it was like pulling teeth 
trying to get brethren to even have a study. I said, what are you guys doing Saturday afternoon? Oh, well, I've got some. What stuff? Oh, I was going to watch the football game. Okay, yeah, no, no football game. This is more important than a football game. Oh, I was going to rake my yard. Yeah, your yard can wait a couple of days. This is important. Finally, we get everybody together. Some people don't want to talk about it. Other people do. And it was tough to get everybody even on a consensus. But guess what? We didn't arrive at a consensus. And I said, okay, guys, we're going to have to meet again to come to an agreement on this. Unity takes time. It takes sacrifice. It's work. And they said, no, we're, we're not interested in having another meeting. <laughs> okay. So what happened? We didn't have a policy at all. And I don't know if it was providential or not. But it was very interesting because within a week, somebody came forward that wanted to be put forward as a member. This lady came forward and said, hey, I want to be a member of the congregation. But it was very clear that this lady had some problems, some significant issues. And the brethren came up to me afterwards and they said, well, uh, Caleb, what are we going to do? I said, what do you mean, what are we going to do? We don't have a policy on this. You guys just have to accept her as a, as a member, right? And he said, I don't know. There seems to be some issues, and we're not sure about her baptism. We're not, we, we don't know. And I said, you guys weren't willing to come together and have a meeting to actually get to the unity, and now you just want to toss the decision to the preacher? This is ridiculous. You can't do this. And thanks be to God, after that whole debacle and all the fallout that came from that, they eventually got together and had a meeting, and came to unity on it. It took a long time, but they found a way forward. Why can't we do that on more things? Why are we walking on eggshells all the time? Why are we not willing to engage? And I'm speaking to myself in this. I'm speaking straight to Caleb. Because there are too many times I'm driven by cowardice, and I'm thinking, you know what, I can't speak on this. I can't say anything, because I don't want to upset things. I don't want this brother to get upset at me. If we cared about the brother, if we cared about our unity we would risk the potential of being upset and we'd say something. We'd speak out of love and with patience. The common unity is something we have to fight for because it's something that does not come naturally. It's not in our fallen nature to have. We do not just arrive at it by our culture either. But it is something that we need to understand that Christ calls us to. And just like with any aspect of holiness in our life, we must sacrifice for it and work hard to achieve it. In Romans, the 12th chapter, Paul writes, saying, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Does this define you? There are some people who just exude this, right? They are the exemplary ones on this. There are many times where I do not exemplify this. And it's sad, because if we had an entire church filled with people of this nature that gave preference to one another, that were affectionate with one another, we would have a church that was strongly unified. And it's tough. There are lots of times I will show up to worship service and I'll be like, man, that brother... He just grinds my gears. And I do not want to deal with him today. I have a headache. I've got all this stuff going on with my family. I've got all this other stuff i got to get ready for the church. I just don't want to deal with him. That's Satan talking. I actually ran into a brother one time in Texas that said, 
you know what? I know God commands me to love the brother, so I guess I'll love him, but I don't have to like him. I'm like, what? <laughs> are, you, are you serious? That is not a Christian perspective. How do you read Romans 12 and say, well, I don't have to like my brother and I have to love him? That's like out of obligation. Our love for one another should be something that is kindly affectionate. The idea of Philadelphia is not something that God has to drag you kicking and screaming over to love your brother. It's something that we should do in affection to one another, loving each other. And I may be preaching to the choir, so to speak, here, because it seems that you all have a very strong bond, but this is something that we cannot let go. We have to be diligent on. As the world continues to separate and fragment and break apart at the seams, we can show people the difference of what it's like to live in harmony and in love. And in fact, Jesus says so in John chapter 13, um, verse 35, that by all this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is something that we are going to exemplify. Sorry, I got my slides out of order here. That we can exemplify in our unity when we look at the idea of that we are brought in together into unity. There should be no divisions or, or factions within us, as was that was the problem in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but that instead of fighting and bickering among each other, we are grounded together in love for one another and love for the truth. There is so little love in the world today. The love that the world preaches and flies with that false god rainbow flag, it's not a love. It's hedonistic pleasure. It's not sacrifice. It's not putting the other's welfare before your own. And when people around the world are grasping for love. They are grasping for a sense of common unity, a belonging of something that's greater than themselves. If we look just like the world in being fractured, selfish, individualistic Christians, we've lost power in our testimony. The world will know that we are Christ's disciples. How? By our love for one another. And it's tough to love somebody. It requires so much sacrifice. When we think about this application, brother, there are a couple things I want to I mention here. First, God's house is not a place you go to, but a family and a community that you are a part of. Yes, I understand the word church, as in 1 Corinthians 14, can be applied to the assembly. But more often than not, this is discussing the relationship that we have. We don't go to God's house. We are his house. He abides in us. And how do we do that? By being the united community of Christ. We have to do so by preferring one another and loving one another. We have to invest in each other and be generous with each other. This is tough because it means that I have to actually go and find out what my brother needs. It means that I have to know what his struggles are. And to do so, I have to actually communicate with the person. And I know that's not easy. It's a lot easier to go home, click on the TV, turn on a video game, look on Facebook, and just veg. Than going home, picking up the phone, talking with somebody, or saying, you know what, tonight I'm going to meet up with this brother. I'm going to go over to his house and bring him something. We're going to talk, and we're going to engage, and we're going to work through something. I'm going to learn more about him, and I'm going to learn how I can actually help him in real time. That's tough. But if we want to get past being just a shadow, a ghost of what the church should be, and if we want to actually find a way to go beyond Babylon, 
then we have to capture these biblical forms and patterns and apply them in our life. And it's important for us to truly form a common bond with our brothers and sisters. There's a reason why the household of God, in the household of God, we refer to one another as brother and sister. Because we're family. You should be able to depend on me and me on you. And that's specifically exemplified in the local congregation. Where God takes a multiplicity of people's languages, experiences, perspectives, and he brings them into a unified one. The question that we have here is, do we really strive together to reach truth and love? But if we're going to do that, we have to understand that God is calling us to be a different pattern from the world around us. And as I've talked about Babylon, and I said at the very beginning, my thesis in this, the point, is that the only way that we're going to be able to overcome Babylon is if we find God's pattern and plan for us as the church. Because when we think about chapter 2 in Daniel, the dire warning for the nations of Babylon and their false gods is that there will come a kingdom, a rock, a stone that is cut from the great mountain without hands, and it will come and it will dash into pieces the kingdoms of earth. And it will stand as a mountain forevermore, and there will be no end to the kingdom of God. How is that actually accomplished? It's not accomplished with violence. It's not accomplished through a political action group. It's accomplished through love. It's accomplished through exemplifying Christ in our lives and showing people from the inside out there is a different way to live and that by submission to Christ and being bound together, we have something greater than anything that Babylon can offer us. Jesus talks about that. He's talking to Peter. Peter says that they had left all to follow Christ. And Jesus notes that if we're willing to follow him, yeah, we're going to have to sacrifice in this life. We might have to lose our family. We might have to lose friends. We might have to lose potential and opportunities around us. But that which we lose will pale in comparison to the blessings and benefits that we will receive. All of you here that are baptized in Christ are my brothers and my sisters. We are a family. We shouldn't have the concept of the world that blood is thicker than water. We should rather understand that because we are exiles, we are all bound so deeply in our Lord Jesus Christ that nothing that Babylon can offer or do to us can take away this tremendous bond. But when we think about this, we need to understand that our perspective as the church and community of Christ is not simply coming to do obligations. Our brethren have focused so much on restoring the proper form in worship, and that is good, and that was needed historically, as so many false movements disregarded the proper form and function. But we need to understand that it's not just coming and taking of the Lord's Supper in the right way, singing songs in the right way, worshiping in the right way. We are being called to a relationship as a community together. And it's important if we want to be part of this great kingdom that will never end, we must be restored. How do we reach restoration? Restoration is not a single point, but a continued process. And it doesn't just end with the worship. We say we want to be the New Testament church. That is noble, pure, and a great desire. But if we have restored in form the worship of the New Testament church, but we have abandoned the character in the community of the New Testament church, then how dare we call ourselves 
the New Testament church. We have to be all. We have to be correct in the form and function of our worship, and we have to be correct in the way that we live together and treat one another. We can show the presence in the way that we commune together, and we can show the presence in the way that we live together. We should not be distracted by the consumeristic and individualistic gods of this world. They call us to consume one another, to bite and devour one another, to put all things in a form of scarcity, in competition. But in Christ, as family, there is abundance, there is renewal, there is kinship and bonds that can never be severed. And it is only when we seek the restoration of the entirety of the characteristic of God's church that we will be the conquering community that Christ intends us to be. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus talks about the church. And after the great confession of Simon Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Have you ever thought about that last phrase? The gates of Hades will not overpower it? Oftentimes I think in our minds we think about that in a wrong way of thinking the army of Hades will not overpower it. Because we think of the church as this like outpost where we're all huddled together and we're weathering the attacks of Satan. That's not the proper form to think about it. Many times we have this idea because we see the power of Babylon around us. We see the destruction of Hades and the lack of love and, and how terrible society can be. And we say, we just got to hold on over here. While slowly we let all these influences of the false gods creep in and destroy us from the inside out. But being truly transformed to be a community of Christ, we need to understand this in a proper form. The church is not on the defensive in this text. The church is on the attack. The gates of Hades are the fortress that are going to be overrun and completely destroyed. In ancient times, they built cities on a hill. And they had a rampart that went up to the hill. And they would oftentimes put a crook, a turn, in the ramparts. Why? Because archers sit on top of the gates, and as the chariots or the rams would come up, they would expose their flank on the curve, and there the archers would take advantage of them and be able to overpower the attacking army. But what Jesus is saying here is that the church, following his pattern, is going to be conquering to the point that even the devices of Hades itself will not be able to stop it. It will be an unstoppable force. And that's what we see the New Testament church like. We want to be the New Testament church. But in our current situation, can we actually say that we are mirroring that? Sure, we take the Lord's Supper correctly. Sure, we sing songs correctly. Our worship service may have the proper elements, which is vitally important. But it's no less than that. It's more than that. And we have to adopt this character of the community of Christ if we're going to conquer and love is the most powerful force that there is. Love brought our creator to an incarnate form to suffer for us. And love is what we must embody in ourselves and in our church. And that love is then to transform the world around us and to bring the powers of darkness and even Hades itself into subjection to Christ. 
And the gospel calls for us to be a part of that. It's a holy call on a cosmic level, calling us to be warriors, to go out and bring the darkness into subjection to the light through the love and truth of Christ. And the way we do that is by working together in the church and being the people of God, his household. And if we're willing to do that and willing to make the sacrifices that are required for that, then we will find victory in Christ. As a local community here, as a local church here, God will bless you if you're willing to do that. It may be difficult. You may lose friends. You may even lose members. But if you are staying faithful to Christ in love and truth, then there is nothing but victory that will await you. And so my hope is that we can see that the answer to Babylon is really the church, is really us. Not by changing a political party, not by adopting the false gods of Babylon and making a compromise, but being radically dedicated and committed to being the New Testament church. Because the New Testament church is not a cowering community that is fledgling, but is one that is conquering with love and will be victorious in Jesus Christ. That can be you. That can be us if we're willing to actually put aside our selfishness and individualism and all the false gods and accept Christ and follow his pattern. If you're not a member of the body of Christ, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> really, you don't. But you don't have to stay outside. You can have your identity in Christ and tied into a community and tied into a brotherhood. And I know there are a lot of people who might look at the church and say, well, it's filled with hypocrites. Yeah, but the presence of hypocrisy demonstrates that there is something that is true. If there is no truth at all, like the world around us says, there could be no hypocrisy at all. So yes, there are people who are weak in the church. There are people who are hypocritical in the church. There are people who need to do more in the church, as we all do. But we're aiming to something greater, an ideal that we're pursuing. And there is no salvation outside the body of Christ. Plain and simple. So where do you want to be? Unmoored in a loveless, dark, and evil landscape? Fighting for yourself? Or do you want to be part of a family? Not just in word, but in deed. People who live together in common unity. The only way you can do that is by accepting Jesus Christ through believing in Him, repenting of your sins, confessing Christ as the Son of God and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's just the start. That's the entrance into the community. And then we have to continue to go together, to assemble, to work with each other. And we offer that for you tonight. Or if you are a Christian and perhaps you stumble, perhaps you haven't been the member of the local body that you should. Perhaps you've been rebellious like Babel was in the past. God calls you to submission. He calls you, like the prodigal son, to come back. And he is waiting for you there, as are the brethren here, ready to accept you and to work together in truth and in love. If there's any way we can help you respond to the gospel invitation, please come forward as we stand and sing.